You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. church for giving your lives for the cause of Christ. We just want to thank God for you. Thank you for sharing just all that God has done over the years. And thank you for letting us be a part in supporting you. And we, we do just hope this next season will be just as fruitful, even though it'll be different. It will be just as fruitful for the Lord. We thank God for you. Well, the church this morning, if you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Verses 11 through 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. We're continuing on in our series, Freedom in Christ, the Glorious Gospel of Galatians. I have an echo. Can we take that away if it's possible? Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. I invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Lord, among the many gifts you give us, you have given us your word, and you have given us preaching of your word each Sunday. So, Lord, we now ask, would you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds that comprehend all that you want to say to us today. Lord, we we are aware that you, holy God, are addressing us. So, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive from you now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For all that are here this morning, and you would profess to be a Christian, which is probably the vast majority, if you're here and you would say that you've placed your faith in Jesus and He is your Lord and your Savior, if you would say that you have experienced the new birth 
and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Let me ask this simple yet most important question. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Let me actually ask it a different way. How did you become a Christian? Now, I don't mean what steps did you take? Like you repented of your sin, you put your faith in Jesus. But why did you become a Christian? And how did you become a Christian? What took place that all of a sudden you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, how you and I answer that question will have a profound impact on our view of grace, salvation, and the call to share the gospel with others. You see, here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, the Apostle Paul, he shares with these churches in the region of Galatia the reason why he was a Christian. He clearly tells us why he was changed and he became a Christian. And not only does he share with them why he was a Christian, he shares with them why all those who've heard him preach and have put their faith in Jesus Christ, why they too are Christians. That's what we're going to discover this morning in this passage. Our text this morning actually divides into three sections under the following three headings. So if you're taking notes, here is our outline. We see Paul's passionate defense, verses 11 through 12. Paul's historical evidence, verses 13 through 14, and Paul's supernatural explanation, verses 15 through 17. Let's begin with Paul's passionate defense in verses 11 through 12, and I just want to read these two verses again. All right, for I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I truly believe apart from Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul has been the most influential figure in Christianity. Apart from Jesus, there has probably been no man who has had a greater influence on Christianity than this man. The countless ways in which God has used this man to spread the message of Christianity worldwide is still seen and felt today. For example, we hold in our hands this morning, we just read and right now we are reflecting on words that God used the Apostle Paul, he inspired him to write. He wrote this letter to these, these churches here in Galatia, and we are still reflecting on it today and still hearing God speak through letters like this one. And not only do we hold this sacred and God-inspired letter written by Paul's own hands, but another thing that we see his influence today is Paul's missionary uh, efforts and his message still shape the doctrine and the practice of the church today. So much of what we do is shaped 
by what we read in the New Testament. And out of the 13 letters of Paul, think about how much we benefit and gather for the way that we do so many things on Sunday mornings. So many ways that we we operate as, as, as churches is due to the influence of this man. That leads to this question, who was this man? Better yet, how did he become a Christian? And why did he devote his life, his entire life, to making sure that everyone knew, no matter who they were, they knew of Jesus and His saving grace? Well, if you recall from the last few Sundays, Paul, writing to these churches in Galatia, he's having to defend his message and his ministry among the Galatians due to false teachers who were seeking to discredit him because by discrediting him, they could preach a different gospel. But in turn, the gospel they were preaching was a corrupt gospel. It was not a gospel from God. It was not a gospel of freedom. So Paul had to offer a defense for why he preached that faith in Jesus alone justifies a person before God. They don't, as the false teachers are teaching, they don't have to keep the Old Testament law and they don't have to keep all of the Old Testament practices in order to be made right with God. Now think about this. Given the fact that Paul at one time his beliefs about Jesus and and salvation were actually far worse than the false teachers, then maybe you can understand why they were tempted to accuse him of making up a gospel that was motivated by a selfish agenda. So if you're you're still scratching your head, say, okay, why would these guys say that Paul is preaching a man-made gospel. Do, do you remember what Paul used to teach and what he used to believe? See, remember these false teachers, uh, as far as we can tell by reading this entire letter, to our knowledge, they're not denying that Jesus is Lord. That was not true of the Apostle Paul before he got saved. Remember, Paul had previously killed people for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. To hear that would have brought rage out in him. He would have not only arrested you, he would have probably had you killed. That's not true of these false teachers. As far as we can tell, they're not saying Jesus wasn't Lord or that he didn't die on a cross for the forgiveness of sin. They're saying all of that's true. We're just saying you have to also... Keep the Old Testament laws and you have to do certain things that that God's people have always done to to be right with God. See, Paul actually believed at one point, not only that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but he strongly believed that salvation came by being a law keeping Jew. And now he's preaching that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus alone saves. And then here's the most surprising part. He's out of all the people he could preach to. He's preaching to Gentiles, (laughs) to those who aren't 
even Jews. And here's what he's telling them. They don't have to take on the sign of the Old Old Covenant, which was circumcision. And they don't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be a part of the people of God. Think about how radical this is. This radical change in Paul was not only outrageous, it appears to be scandalous. Paul must have had sinister, selfish motives in order to have made such a change. That's the the claim of the false teachers. They're saying his message and his mission have to be man-made. How could this man go from from teaching these things to all of a sudden turning around and, 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 and proclaiming things about Jesus. So Paul has to defend himself that his gospel isn't man-made. He began to do this all the, way, all, all the way back in the very opening of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Verse 10. For, I'm not, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Are you seeing this theme? He, he all the way at the beginning of the letter and, and several times already last week we heard. And now again, he's having to make this case. He is making it clear that everything that he has been doing has not been the result of any man. It's not even been because this was his desire to do this. This is not man's gospel and his mission is not simply a mission. He was sent out by any man. That brings us now to verse 12. In verse 12, he states the heart of his defense. For he says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when when Paul claims that he did not receive this gospel that he's preaching from any man, nor was he taught it by any man, we must not conclude from this statement. This would be a wrong conclusion. We must not conclude that Paul had never heard the message of the gospel up until his conversion. That would be false. Actually, quite the opposite. The fact is, the apostle Paul had heard the the message of the gospel preached a number of times. Let me give you one example. Do you remember Acts chapter 7? He was there when Stephen was preaching about Jesus and, and, and all who heard him were so filled with rage that they stoned Stephen. And it says that the Apostle Paul was there and he was basically giving them the thumbs up. So he had heard the message of the gospel. See, what Paul meant when he said he did not receive this gospel message from any man, nor was he taught it by any man. He was making the claim that his understanding of the gospel was not the result of human reasoning or rationale. That's the point he's making. He's not saying, I never heard it from anyone. All of a sudden, it just came to me. Or an angel delivered it. Oh, he had heard it before. And he had rejected it. But now he's saying, I didn't receive this message from 
any man, nor was I taught it. And he's basically saying the reason I understand this gospel is not the result of human reasoning or rationale. In other words, Paul didn't begin to believe in Jesus because he finally runs into the right person who, who makes all the right arguments. It wasn't like Paul was just hearing all these people and saying, yeah, I, I just don't believe that. And all of a sudden he meets the right guy and he goes, oh man, okay, you are so convincing. Now, finally, someone, these other guys, they were amateurs. You finally explained it well enough to me. You've answered all my questions. You've shown me everything I've needed to see from the Old Testament to see that Jesus was the Messiah and that his crucifixion was of God and that his resurrection was real. I totally get it. Thank you, brother. Thanks, thank you for finally opening my eyes. That's not what's happening here at all. Now, pay careful attention to this word that Paul uses in verse 12 to explain then what did happen. And it's this word revelation. You see that word in verse 12? When it's used in the New Testament, it always describes and explains one thing. The word revelation, when used in the New Testament, always means God has made something known that otherwise wouldn't be known had God not revealed it. So that's what a when the when the word revelation appears anywhere in scripture it's always saying God made something known. He revealed something that no one could just be walking down the street and go, "Oh, hey, I I get that." It's something only we can understand because God has made it known. And Paul re refers to this as a revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a revelation in general, it's a revelation of Jesus. Now, I think what, what Paul's talking about here when he talks about this revelation of Jesus is, first of all, Jesus was the object of this revelation. Meaning, all of a sudden, he saw things about Jesus he had never seen. But not only is Jesus the object of this revelation, I believe he's also the source of this revelation. And why do I say that? Well, Paul, I believe, is obviously referring to what happened to him on the road to Damascus. It was Jesus who appeared to him and revealed who he really was that changed Paul. If you want to read more about that experience on the road to Damascus, you can read in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Now, what we see next after Paul makes this statement, which we're going to come back to, what, what, is this, what is this revelation and how did it change Paul? We're going to come back to that in verses 15 through 17. But next, this is what we see the Apostle Paul do. He goes from making his defense in verses 11 through 12 to putting forward evidence that there's no other explanation for this radical change in his life. So he, he lays out this, this defense in verses 11 through 12. This is not man's gospel. Here's why. And then in verse 12, he tells us, I did not receive it from any man. It came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. And now what he's going to do is he's going to turn around and say, let me give you some evidence. Verses 13 through 14. We now come to Paul's historical evidence. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's now offering evidence to back up his claim. 
It's almost as if he's saying, let me give you evidence, exhibit A. Here's, here's how you can know that what I'm saying is true. My religious upbringing and my past ambition back up this claim. Think about this. The point Paul makes in this defense is simple. He's basically saying, what explanation can my opponents give for why I would have changed my long-held beliefs and the course of my life unless something profound happened to me? Them just saying, well, well, Paul must just be preaching this gospel out of selfish ambition. He's going, how? I believed all, from the time I was young, I have been on the track to not only be a, a God-fearing Jew, but to be the elite God-fearing Jew. If you remember Philippians 3, Paul goes through this list and he's just like, man, I, I, not only did I get a gold star in all of them, I was top of the class. I was the Pharisee of Pharisee. I had more zeal than anyone else I knew. I persecuted Christians. It wasn't that long ago. I hated the name of Christ. So why in the world, if you remember my story, would I just turn around and throw all that away? And all the people that I used to kick out of the synagogue, now it's dangerous for me to go into one. Why would I do that? There has to be a greater explanation. It's as if Paul was saying, why would I, being a man pleaser, renounce my former way of life to follow Jesus, and out of all things, become a minister to Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Like, if I'm a man-pleaser, I'm doing this all wrong. I was on the man-pleasing track when I, was, when I was kicking Christians out, and I was taking them to jail. So what else explanation could there be? See, Paul lays out this evidence to say, listen, my life changed. And the reason it changed is because God revealed His Son to me. That's the only human explanation. And anyone who knows my story, and everyone would have known his story, that's the only way you can make sense of why I'm now preaching Jesus and Him crucified. That brings us now to verses 15 through 17. Paul's supernatural explanation. We now turn to this theme that was mentioned in verse 12, and it appears again in verses 15 through 16, this idea of revelation. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. But when He, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach among, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Do you, do you see the point Paul's making? Paul went from rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior to then believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior for one simple reason. Because of this revelation. It was this revelation that all of a sudden took Paul, who knew the Scriptures, who heard people like Stephen skillfully point to all the Old Testament and say, do you not see how Jesus lines up with this? And Paul heard that and, and, and he did not believe. So why all of a sudden did everything change? Because of this revelation. 
Now, even though there's been some discussion and, and a bit of debate among some commentators whether Paul here is just simply describing his conversion experience or his commissioning as an apostle, that's what some people would say. Okay, what happened on the Damascus Road? Was it his conversion? Was it his commissioning? Was it just his commissioning without his conversion? Well, I, I think it's rather clear that both are in view. That what happened on that day when Paul was on his way to persecute more Christians and Jesus Christ showed up, it was both his conversion and his commissioning. Notice what Paul does here in verse 15. Paul in, in, invokes the language of Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who claimed, if we had more time, we could look at both Isaiah and Jeremiah, they claimed they were set apart by God before they were born. And Paul, now this side of revelation and seeing Jesus and seeing Jesus change his life, realized, I'm just like them. God set me apart before I was born to fulfill this role, to not only know Jesus, but to make him known and to make him known among the Gentiles. See, if you were to ask Paul, why are you a Christian? And why are you an apostle? I believe he would answer without hesitation. Because the Lord had set me apart before I was born. And the Lord has called me by his grace. And look at the beginning of verse 16. And he did all of this according to his good You would ask Paul, Paul, why did you go from hating Christians to being the greatest missionary the world has ever known? Paul would say, because God set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace and he did it all according to his good pleasure. See, Why was Paul a Christian despite his upbringing and his past hatred for Christ and Christianity? Sovereign grace. That's why. Sovereign grace. Paul did not merit favor from God. God had chosen to display his perfect grace in Paul's life by choosing him before he was born. And he did so because it was pleasing to him. That's the explanation Paul gives. I believed these things and was pursuing these things because it's all I knew and I thought I was right. And then a radical change happened. And why did it happen? Because God did a work in me that has no other explanation, but it has his fingerprints all over it. Now, up to this point, we've answered the why question. But it's time we now answer the how question. How did Paul all of a sudden realize that everything he was believing about Jesus in light of the Scripture was wrong and that Jesus actually did fulfill all of Scripture. What happened? How did he all of a sudden change his view? He tells us at the beginning of verse 16 with these words, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? Did all of a sudden Paul start believing in Jesus? Because God revealed his son to Paul. Did you pick up on the how? The revelation of Jesus 
changed Paul's views about. The revelation of Jesus to Paul changed Paul's views about Jesus. Remember again, the word revelation always describes something that God alone can make known that can't just be made known through human observation or intellect. So, so let's, let's understand what Paul's saying. This means Paul began to believe in Jesus because something supernatural happened. Right? That's the point he's making. Now, let's not make the mistake and say, well, where do you see the word supernatural? But if you get the argument, he's saying, no man taught me this. No man shared this with me. If anything, every time I heard it, I became more defensive and more angry. Wanted to kill Christians. Thought it was blasphemy that they would dare say that about Jesus. So naturally speaking, Paul would have never come to saving faith if something hadn't happened. So what's the opposite of natural? Supernatural. That's why I use that word. See, something supernatural Happen. The point Paul was making when he said that he did not receive this gospel from man, nor was he taught it by man, he was basically saying he didn't come to this process by natural reasoning or observation. It came by revelation. Do you remember what happened with Peter? As he was standing before Jesus and Jesus asked this question to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they all saw Jesus. Peter wasn't privy to any other information about Jesus as far as we can tell. And everybody said, well, some say you're this, some say you're this. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And you know what Peter says? You are Christ. And what does Jesus say? Give me a fist bump. Good job, Peter. Way to put it together. I knew you were the smartest one of the twelve. He says, blessed are you, Peter, for my father revealed this to you. Otherwise, you would have been like everybody else. I don't know, maybe you're John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, come back from the dead, maybe you're a prophet, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. And they all saw the same miracles, all saw the same things. The only reason Peter says, you're Christ, is because something happened, this supernatural Revelation occurred. Had God not revealed Himself to Paul, Paul would have never believed the Gospel. Now, there's a word that Scripture use, uses to describe this supernatural revelation. It's the word calling. And it's found here in our text. In almost all the cases where we see that word call or calling used, especially in Paul's letter, here's what it means. It's not referring to an invitation. When we use the word call, we mean to invite someone. Are there some places in the New Testament where a call means to say, hey, come? Yes. But overwhelmingly, that's not what the word means, especially in Paul's writings. When he uses the word call, he's not referring to an invitation. To borrow the words of the late theologian John Murray, the word calling in Scripture, especially in the writings of Paul, means this. It's a summons by God that secures a response. 
It's a summons by God that secures a response. You think, okay, how would that work? We've, I've shared this many times before, so this is not new. You've probably heard this from others before, but think about the difference of what happened when Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. He wasn't saying, hey, Lazarus, do you like to? No, when he said, Lazarus, come forth, it made him come forth. The summons secured the response. Lazarus all of a sudden went from dead to alive. Went from unresponsive to, how did I get here? That's, that's what Paul means when he talks about call. And this is what happened to Paul. When God called him, he came to Christ. New Testament scholar and commentator on the book of, of Galatians, Doug Moo, says this, when God revealed his son to Paul, he was both converted and commissioned. That's the, that's the simple explanation for Paul. Paul, how did you get here? Why did you start believing these things? When God revealed his son to him, Paul was converted and commissioned. Now, in case you think, well, that, Josh, that, that, that was Paul's experience. I haven't had a dramatic Damascus Road experience with Jesus. So that's really cool that that's what happened to Paul. But what does that have to do with me? Well, let me show you from the New Testament why the concept of calling doesn't just describe Paul's experience. It explains why anyone who is saved by grace through faith in Christ has experienced the same thing. Listen to the language of calling. Just a few examples. First Corinthians chapter, or actually here in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 first. If you go back to last week's text, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So Paul doesn't just speak of his own calling. When he speaks to these believers in Galatia, he says you were called. And that's how he speaks of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with, with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he, he begins this letter by saying, you were called, you were called, you were called. Okay, you may say, I see that. Christians are, are people that are, that are referred to by that term, called. But what does that term mean? He goes on to explain in chapter 1 what call means. Listen to verse 18, what he says about the message of the cross. For the word of the cross, that's what the word, word means. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now think about that. If for everyone who's perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness, how can they be saved? Well, he goes on. Verses 22 through 24. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Listen to this. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
So everybody hears the message of the cross and says, that's ridiculous. I'm not believing that. So then how could anybody be saved? Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verses 26 through 29, listen to what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence. There is the answer. Why not only did Paul believe, but why do you believe? Because God called you. And His call was a summons that secures a response. Let me give you one more example. So you can see this in the New Testament. Romans 8 verse 30. Listen to what's called this golden chain. And the language is very important here because it says, all those whom He predestined, He also And all those he called, he justifies. And all that he justifies, he glorifies. It doesn't say some whom he called will not be justified. And some whom he justifies will not be glorified. It says those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, they are justified. And those who are justified will be glorified. You hear that? The word calling doesn't mean, I'm going to call and hopefully some, some will respond. It's a calling that secures The response. Now, the clearest, most pronounced place in Paul's writing that explains this concept of call and this idea of supernatural revelation being imparted to the soul comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Listen to this. Even though the word calling doesn't appear in this passage, think about how Paul explains why some have heard the gospel and turn away and others believe. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, those who reject the gospel, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So why do some look at Jesus and He's not spectacular to them? Because the God of this world has kept them from seeing it. It's not because Jesus isn't glorious. It's because they can't see it. So how do they see it? If the God of this world has blinded their eyes, then notice what Paul says happens in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When God spoke, into darkness and made light. Was that not supernatural? Well, he's saying the same thing happens. When God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why, all of a sudden, those who can't see the glory of Christ 
God shows something into their heart. He shines a light, not literally. But what does a light represent? It represents if you walk into a room and you can't see anything, you turn the light on so you can see. It, it, it represents illumination. All of a sudden, those who could not see can now say, whoa, he's glorious. Wow. I've never seen that. Never could have ever understood that. See, what, what's being described here is this kind of supernatural revelation. It, it, it comes to people because God all of a sudden opens their eyes. Now, notice how God does this. How does He impart the supernatural light through the revelation of Jesus? Look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4. Between verse 4 and verse 6, listen to what Paul says. For we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So how does God take those who don't see the glory of Christ and do this supernatural work where all of a sudden their eyes go from blind to open through the preaching of the Word? God uses means. Isn't that what we see here in verse 16 of Galatians 1? But when he who had set me apart for I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might what? Preach him among the Gentiles. So what conclusion should we draw from these passages? The only conclusion we must come to after reflecting on the call of God through the preaching of the gospel is this. Without the proclamation of the gospel, no one can come to Christ. Yet. Apart from the divine summons that secures a response, preaching the gospel will not bring anybody to saving faith. Both are necessary. God opens blind eyes through the preaching of His Word. We must open our mouths. We must preach the gospel. But if we think preaching the gospel makes people saved, if we do it well enough, if we answer all the questions, if we get the Romans road right, people will be saved. Wrong. What has to take place is supernatural. God has to all of a sudden take the blinders off and say, look and see. And they can see. That is what happens. So go back to that question we began with. Why are you a Christian? If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God did this supernatural work in your life. He called you by His grace. He revealed His Son to you. And He did it according to His sovereign will and His good pleasure. That's why. That's the only explanation. It's not just Paul's explanation. It must be our explanation. Why? My, a Christian. Because God has done this supernatural work in my life. In other words, if you're a Christian, you were called by His grace. God did this work in you. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century preacher from England, an amazing 
preacher tells his own story. He says this, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all by myself and thought I sought the Lord earnestly. I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul. When there was, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. I can recollect how I felt that it had grown on a sudden form, I had grown on from sudden being a babe into a man. That I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. One night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek. Prayed, I thought, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by the reading of the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make it my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Who do you ascribe your change to? Well, God changed me once I wised up and put my faith in Jesus. Or I was running a hellbound race, indifferent to the cross. But God, in His mercy, said, Josh, come forth. And I was saved. And you were saved. The only way anyone can be saved. And, friends, one of the many benefits, and there's many benefits of knowing that God called us by His grace and revealed His Son to us. But here's one, it humbles. It humbles us. That ought to be one of the effects, one of the greatest enemies of grace. Church, listen to this as we close. One of the greatest enemies of grace is a self-righteous spirit. It's one of the greatest enemies of grace at work in our life is a self-righteous spirit and nothing can sever or slay the self-righteous spirit better in a Christian than a healthy dose of sovereign grace. When you realize the truth of what God did for you, what else can you do? What else can you do but just stand back and say, how God did this? I did nothing. Apart from your grace, I'd be no different from my neighbor or my co-worker or my family member who wants nothing to do with me. I'm not smarter than them. I'm not more moral than them. I'm not more religious than them. I don't have a better belief. It's not how I grew up. You call me by your name. And it humbles us. 
And it leaves us amazed. That's how we ought to respond to that question. Why am I a Christian? Because of what God has done for me. And being aware of that should humble us and fill us with hope, with joy, and with humility, and with a desire to say, God could use my feeble words that I proclaim to someone else to all of a sudden awaken them. That's the hope of evangelism. I don't have to be the most skilled evangelist. All I have to believe is if I am obedient and faithful, God may use my words to bring somebody from death to life. Next week, I know we didn't really talk much about verse 17 because in verses 18 through 24 next week, we, we are going to see why does Paul keep talking about how, how long he, he went before he went to Jerusalem and all the other places he went. Why, why is this important for him to state his travelogue? Why does he keep telling us all the places he went and how long it took him? Well, we'll find out next week. This is still part of Paul's important defense. But for now, let's pray. Just thank the Lord for meeting us today through his word. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And not only do we thank you for your word, we thank you for reminding us of this sweet truth. That if we have eyes to see your glory, it's all because of you. And so, Lord, we just stand amazed. And we look to you. And we, we just want to be humble before you. And we, we just want to express our gratitude. And we want to just say, Lord, thank you for saving me. May you use us to be a means of seeing others come to salvation. Lord, thank you for this letter. Thank you that you inspired it and wrote it and preserved it for all these years so that we could benefit from it today. Now would you take the truths we've heard and write them on our heart so that we may live in light of what we've just heard and be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning,